Thank you for taking the time to view this message online. You can connect with us more through our comments section of this video, through our Facebook page, or through our website, nhgj.org. This message is going out on Father's Day, so I want to wish all the dads out there a very happy Father's Day. Uh, what a blessing it is when we get to see uh, the image of our Heavenly Father lived out in the lives of our dads here on earth. And so whether it's by birth or by influence, uh, fathers make a tremendous impact on our lives. So happy Father's Day, dads. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hey, we've uh, started into a series on the book of Revelation. Um, it is a book of worship, is the lens through which we're looking at the book of Revelation. Looking back on the first message, I highlighted that Revelation really isn't a code breaker book. You don't have to have special insights and, and resources to be able to understand what's happening in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are a lot of symbols. There's uh, much symbolism that's included. It's packed with images, uh, the use of numbers, uh, especially the numbers seven and 12 and multiples of those numbers. But those really aren't codes as much as they are uh, these images that point to ideas and themes that are consistent throughout Scripture. And that is to say that when we get to the book of Revelation, it's not as though we have the whole of the Bible and then we have Revelation that's kind of out here on its own place, on its own bookshelf. It is part of the whole of Scripture, and it really should be read in light of the rest of Scripture. In fact, let me share with you just a, a few of these symbols or these themes that are consistent with Scripture, just so maybe it'll help you get this idea of reading Revelation in light of the rest of Scripture. Uh, so there's approximately 590 Old Testament references identified in the book of Revelation. And that makes up about 70% of the verses found within the book. So that's a significant number, 500 in Old Testament 590 Old Testament references. Uh, the number 12 or multiples of 12 appear around 60 times in Revelation. The word lamb is used 28 times in Revelation and not coincidentally, I should add, seven of those times it's used alongside of God. Again, so now we're seeing the number seven reappear as significance and seven typically means perfection or completeness wholeness um, and so we see lamb mentioned 28 times seven of those times alongside god and then finally there were more than seven churches in asia minor at the time so when we say to the uh, to the uh, seven churches of asia minor to the seven churches that these letters are written to in the book of revelation uh, it's not because there were only seven churches uh, there were more than that, but there were seven prominent cities or churches. And it's also to identify that the book of Revelation is to the church as a whole, again, the complete church. And so that's why seven is identified or the letters are to seven churches. So thinking about Revelation in terms of biblical symbols and themes that are continuous throughout Scripture is a better way of viewing it in contrast to this idea, this concept that there's a bunch of mysterious codes and there's one-for-one -one interpretations where we, you know, it's really unique to Revelation where we take this image and that must mean somebody, you know, in our modern time. And, and so that's the image of this person or this nation. 
Uh, and, and so that's, that's somewhat of a more modern view throughout the whole of uh, the entirety of the church. You really have to move into the late 1800s, early 1900s before you get to the church starting to use that approach. And especially you have to move into uh, the 1950s or so after the 1940s. Uh, and so it's very much the modern church that has used this uh, code-breaking idea in the book of Revelation. And so we've maybe adopted something new that isn't so much helpful. And so this is why I really hold this view that Revelation should be viewed in the light of the rest of Scripture. One is because of recency bias. And what this is, it just means that we're always going to, the tendency is to always put ourselves in the middle of things or put our era of time in the middle of things. So we're always going to view our time as the best, our, our time in life. Uh, we're going to view it as the worst or the biggest or the most dire. It's always going to be the last days that we're living in, not the, the time preceding us or the time after us. And so we always tend to interpret things in light of now in the era that we're in. And so that's why I use the term recency bias. Uh, we find this, I, I follow a lot of sports and in uh, sports recency bias comes in when you talk about players. So people tend to think that the best player that's ever played the sport is usually somebody who is alive during their lifetime. Uh, and so you'll often, uh, have people say, well, this was the best player who ever played baseball. This was the best basketball player who ever played point guard. And they'll point to a time where they viewed that person play the game. And again, it's just because I'm experiencing it right now, so it has to be that moment. Well, this same idea comes into Scripture. We, we tend to have this bias that we it, it's hard to break out of, but we view the church, we view Scripture, we view the last days in light of us, not in terms of the whole of time. And this has been going on such a, for such a long time. Uh, predictions about Jesus's return using the book of Revelation started happening almost immediately after Revelation was written. And so uh, dates have been predicted, people and nations have been ascribed roles within the book of Revelation uh, within the first hundred, few hundred years of Revelation being written. And, and, throughout the, the time of the church, and it happens today. So here's what should be held true for every generation though. This is true, and this is kind of the view that we should hold fast to, not a specific name or country or event that we ascribe to the book of Revelation, but this idea, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming as Lord and Lord, King of Kings, and he's coming soon. So that should be consistent throughout all of the church. We should have this sense of urgency and that he is coming soon. And that part of that is because he's coming within our life. And so for me, that means now approximately 40 years, I'm a little over 50 years old, I have this guarantee because I, I doubt I'm going to live past 100 or so 40, maybe 50 years of ever really long life. He's coming soon. That's very soon within my lifetime. If you're younger, uh, just assuming you get to live a long life, you know, you could say Jesus is coming within the next 80 years or 85 years, but that's still relative to the entirety of history, the timeline of history, it's very soon. And so we know that Jesus is coming soon and, and we should hold that view. Secondly, the reason that we want to hold interpretation of Revelation in light of the, all of scripture is because if we only view Revelation 
as an end times book that we need to uh, break the code for, then we miss out on what it was saying to its original listeners. All of a sudden, Revelation only has pertinence or relevance to a future moment. And we would usually say that future moment is now because we're, again, point one was the, our recency bias. But if we only view it in light of a code book, then it only has future relevance. And we miss out on what it said to uh, John's original readers. Uh, we miss out on what it has said to the church over the past 2,000 years. We miss out on what it has to say to the church in the, the present time or what it's going to say in the next 20 years. Uh, what really until Jesus returns, the book of Revelation has relevance and significance for us in the here and now and it has significance for the church in any time period in which it's read. And so we don't want to miss out on that. We want to hear uh, what it is that God is saying to his church, to his body right now. And if we just put it as a code book for future events, we really kind of miss out on that context. Okay, having said those things, let's pray. And we're going to go into Revelation chapter 1 again. And we're going to read about John's vision of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is living and active. Uh, Lord, it pierces us. It gets to the very core of our being. And so we delight in your word and we're so thankful for it. We pray. Lord, that we would really take in what it has to say to us in this moment. Uh, Lord, what it had to say to the church when it was first written, and then also what it's going to say to the church in the future, in the coming days and, and years. And so we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 1, and we're moving past now the greeting that John gave to his readers, and we get to what the, the first part of what it is that John sees, the first part of his vision. So Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. <laughs> now John tells us how this revelation or this apocalypse of Jesus came to be. He says, I was on the island of Patmos because of God's word, meaning that John had been testifying about Jesus. He was exiled to the island for preaching and teaching God's word and for being a witness for Jesus Christ. He's giving them the context, his readers. He's saying, here's where I'm at and here's why I'm here. It's because I'm committed to delivering the message of the kingdom. I'm proclaiming Jesus as king. And so he says, I've been exiled to the island of Patmos. In his retelling of what he saw, he tells them that he is really partnering with them in this tribulation. So when he uses the word partnering in this tribulation, it's not the tribulation that people talk about in end times. He's saying, listen, we, the church, we're in this hardship, this, this suffering, this tribulation together because we're proclaiming God's word, because we're committed to proclaiming Jesus as king, we're in this tribulation together. This is not the end times tribulation. And I just want to clarify that because so many of these words get mixed up in this idea about the end times events, end times events. No, John is saying it's here right now. We're in tribulation because of our testimony about Jesus. This is the persecution and the hardship that go along with proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Now, remember, one of the reasons that this letter, this book was distributed to the churches is because this is a church that very much feels on the brink of just being wiped out. Uh, one emperor after another has been elevated, and now they have Domitian as, uh, as emperor, and he is instituting a strong emphasis of emperor worship, uh, royalty worship. And so there was an actual temple that was established in Ephesus, one of the larger of his temples. And, and you're supposed to worship the royal family. Uh, Domitian and his wife had a son who died at a very young age, and he was elevated to deity status. And so this is what would happen with the royal family. They would be placed in this level of being worshiped, part of the civic worship. And so this is uh, the, the early church. They are the fulfillment of Judaism, but not to those around them. So you have early Christians who are facing persecution from Jews who view them as a sect, as a, as a cultish group of Judaism. And so they're trying to eradicate or push against, fight against the early church. Uh, the early church uh, was from, from a Jewish standpoint, it was uh, a heresy. And so they were facing, the early church was facing persecution from Jews. They were facing persecution, of course, from the emperor and from the Romans who didn't like this rebellious sect. Uh, they were going around, these Christians, they were going around and saying, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. And by implication of saying that, they were saying, listen, the emperor is not. <laughs> we have a king, we have a Lord, his name is Jesus. It's not the emperor. And so they were also on the bad side of their community. Of, though they were good citizens, they were not faithful worshipers of the emperor. So it's to this church 
that needs this encouragement. John says, I'm with you in this. I'm suffering along with you. I'm on the Isle of Patmos and I'm suffering because of my testimony of Jesus. In the midst of the suffering, John says, do you wanna know what I've seen? Can I share with you, let me share with you what it is that has been revealed to me. And he begins by saying, I heard a loud voice. I'm in the spirit and I heard a loud voice. So I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, when we hear the word lampstands, we should think of menorahs, not candlesticks. Uh, again, this is Old Testament imagery that John is uh, describing. And so he's saying, I saw seven gold lampstands or menorahs. And it's one of those times in the book of Revelation where we're given the interpretation within this same passage. In verse 20, it says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's the seven churches that the letters are going out to, but it's the church. And so it's this idea that this, this letter, he's saying, I turned and I saw these seven golden lampstands was the first thing that caught his eye. And then he says, I saw one who was like the son of man. I saw one who is human, he says, but he was otherworldly human. He looked as a son of man, as a, as a human, but he was completely otherworldly. And the image that he draws on comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's like the son of man there with the ancient of days. And so he describes what it is that he saw, rather who it is that he saw standing in the middle with the seven menorahs or lampstands surrounding him. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Again, it's the image of a high priest, but a high priest unlike any other. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. So you have this image of the ancient of days, one who's just so pure and so bright in this way, the ancient of days who has been forever. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Again, pointing back to Old Testament images of kingdoms where they have these different statues and they were uh, based on feet that were crumbling and not solid. But this, this is the one he sees, feet in burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Again, later in the passage, he identifies, verse 20, what those stars are. They're the messengers. And so that interpretation is sometimes it refers to just messengers, which could be pastors or preachers, or it could be angels. And so some interpretations use the word seven angels, which would indicate ministering angels to the churches. It says in his right hand, he sailed seven stars and from his mouth came sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John's response to this is just what we would expect or what we would experience. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. In complete awe and, and just complete reverence and a complete uh, sense of woe is me. 
I, I love what comes next because it's so consistent with the life of Jesus and how we see Jesus in the Gospels. This one who looks like the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days, that commands such awe, it says this about him. He laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay, let's take a moment and really put this image together can we, so we can kind of see what all is happening in, in this time. Remember this church facing persecution, hardship, and it, is it going to hang on for another generation? Is it going to make it? Will we endure or will we see the end of these people who are calling Jesus Lord? John says this, I heard this voice and it was just like a trumpet. It was so loud. It was so powerful. And it said to me that I should write down what I'm about to see and give it to the churches. So I turned to see where this voice is coming from. And I see these seven menorahs all in a circle. And in the middle of the menorahs, I see this one, this one who is just overwhelming with brilliance, so much so that I fall down before him as though I'm just completely dead. And he reaches out and he places his right hand of authority on me. And he tells me not to be afraid. He tells me not to be afraid because he is the overcomer, the ultimate victor who stands in the midst of his church, the lampstands, and he has messengers, the stars, that he sends out to minister to his church. Now, earlier John introduced himself and he said, remember, I'm suffering with you. We're going through this together, this persecution for the sake of the gospel. And now in this breathtaking moment, John says, I introduced myself, but let me tell you about this one who introduces himself to us, the church. He wants us to see Jesus, rather Jesus wants us to see himself. He introduces himself in this way. Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This way of seeing Jesus, the one who died but is now alive forevermore, this is the primary way that you and I will see Jesus through the rest of the book of Revelation. This is how Jesus introduces himself. It is in light of, I'm the one who died and now is alive. I'm the one who shed blood and now I'm alive. In fact, you're going to see uh, the, the imagery of blood over and over throughout the book of Revelation, but it's always, it's predominantly in context of Jesus. He is the one who shed his blood. And you're going to hear the word overcomer again and again, the one who overcomes death, the one who has life, the one who is, has the keys of death and the grave. Over and over, these images come up. And Jesus begins with this, this simple instruction, fear not. And the, the first fear not, it's an encouragement to John who is just feeling overwhelmed, laying at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And, and Jesus affirms him and says, fear not. I'm not here to destroy you, fear not. <laughs> It's much like Isaiah with his vision of the Lord in the temple. 
He also fell down as though dead. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm among a people who are unclean. And the Lord reaches out with, remember, coal from the altar and he cleanses Isaiah in that moment. So Jesus too speaks to John and he says, fear not. In other words, this is not the end. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to proclaim the end. So John, fear not. But this, this fear not is also a word of encouragement to the church. This is not the end. Don't fear what can happen to you at the hands of emperors. Fear not. Why? Because I've overcome death. And this is the second thing that Jesus says as he introduces himself. I have overcome death and now I'm alive. Don't fear rulers who one's here and then he's dead and the next one pops up and then he's dead. Don't fear rulers who are here one day and gone the next. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid of what can happen to you at the hands of people. Why? Because I've overcome death and I'm now alive. They tried to kill me, but now I'm alive. This is how Jesus wants us to see him as he introduces himself. He says, listen, the grave did not hold me. I am the one who has overcome death. So don't fear them. Don't be afraid of people who can just kill the flesh, but rather look to me, the one who has overcome death and the grave. He says, in fact, I hold the keys of death and the grave. I have authority, in other words, over death and the grave. In fact, Jesus alone has that sole right, that sole claim is that he says, I, I have this authority. So all throughout history, all throughout human history, ever since, the, ever since the garden when mankind introduced death into our existence by disobedience to God, the, the, the reality is anybody can introduce death. You can introduce death. I can introduce death. Killing and death is not something unique to any one person. Any one of us can introduce death. He's saying, listen, don't fear people who can bring about death. Anybody can do that. That's human nature. That's our existence is that death is a part of it. He says, instead, look to me. He says, I have the keys of death and the grave. I hold on to them. In other words, anybody can describe or prescribe death over somebody, but only I can speak life. Only I, Jesus says, says has the, the ability to bring you back to life. They have power for death. Big deal. I have power for life and in fact, eternal life. And so in introducing himself this way, Jesus gives us a, a picture or a vision of how we're going to see him going forward. The magnificent one, the ancient of days, the one who has always been, the one who has overcome death and the grave and holds those keys with authority to determine who gets to live. All will die, but not all will live. Only those whom Jesus determines who will live, have eternal life. It's an amazing introduction as we get to see Jesus as John him, saw him in this vision, the magnificent one, the one who 
we would fall at his feet and worship him as though we were dead. In the church, they're looking around and the emperors, they're building temples to themselves and statues and they're commanding armies and they seem so powerful. It seems like all of the, the, the wealth, all of the authority, it seems like everything is out in the world around them. And then John brings them this vision of Jesus who is standing in the midst of his church. But it's not a Jesus who is temporal. It's not a Jesus who one day will be gone. It is an image of Jesus who holds the keys of death in the grave, the one who was dead but is now alive. In this introductory image or picture of who Jesus is, we're given the basis for everything else that will follow in this book. Jesus gives us a vision of himself as being present and attending to his church and ready to give overcoming life. This is really the picture that Jesus wants his church to see. He says, John, send out this picture to the churches. Give, give my church this picture that me, the, the everlasting one, the ancient of days, I'm in their midst. I'm not far away. I'm not distant. I'm not uh, ignoring what's happening. Jesus says, I want them to have this picture. I'm at the center of my church and I see everything that's going on. And in my hand are seven messengers of encouragement. And I'm sending out this word to let them know I am ever present with my church and I'm attending to them and to their needs and let them have this understanding. I have overcoming life. The world has death, but I have eternal life. This implication is that we today, we too should be looking to Jesus, the overcomer, that Jesus hasn't abandoned his church to the world. He's not distant. He, he, he's not unattentive. No, he's very much in the middle of his church, attending to what needs to be done. And he, he has these messengers of encouragement to say, hold fast, hold fast to what you have, because I have the power of life. I have the power over death and the grave. And so don't fear. Don't fear what's happening to you. Don't fear what will come because I have the power for life. And I pray that as we finish this message, that you take hope and you take encouragement. I don't know how you've been viewing Jesus lately. I don't know how you've seen yourself in relationship to him, but I pray that this vision of this almighty powerful one who has overcome death and the grave gives you hope as it was intended to do for that early church who wondered if the emperor and the Roman powers could just wipe them out, if all of the persecution they were experiencing was going to overwhelm them. And then Jesus gives them a picture that says, you're, you're not going to fade away. I am in your midst and I am the overcomer. I pray that you hear that same message today, that Jesus isn't far off from you whether it's a medical diagnosis, whether it's feelings of loneliness and isolation, whether, whether it's relational hardship that you're going through, Jesus is very present with you, but he's very present within his church, his body. And you're not on the brink of being 
of losing your life, but you're on the brink of experiencing eternal life with Christ. Take hope and take heart because he is in your midst and he is the overcomer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this picture of your overcoming victory, that you are the one who was and is and ever will be, that you are not temporary like the emperors and the presidents and the rulers of our age, but Lord, you are eternal. And while people have the ability to bring about death and introduce sin that is death-causing agents that come through sin, and Lord, while we're accustomed to how death rules in this life, Lord, you are in our midst for life and you hold the power you hold the power of life within your hands. The keys of death and the grave, you hold that and it has not overcome you, but you overcame those powers. And so now we look to you to be our life-giving savior, to be the one who helps us overcome just as you have overcome. Thank you for imparting to us your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more resources for this service at nhgj.org. Email us your prayer requests to prayer at nh4gj.org. If you are a new follower of Jesus, we have a free resource for you called Following Jesus. To receive a copy, send a request to info at nh4gj.org. If you would like to partner with our ministry through giving, you can do that online at nhgj.org giving or by mail to 641 Horizon Drive, Grand Junction, Colorado, 81506. Thank you for being with us and may the Lord bless you.